0: The Better Samaritan Podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
2: I doubt not, though I may not live to see it, that God will bring my ministry in that region to a good result.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's message uh, was delivered in 1857 by David Livingston. It was delivered at the University of Cambridge.
1: Joel, this is an exciting one. So, to be fair, this (laughs) wasn't exactly a sermon so, I hope you guys can forgive us for that. It's called a lecture, but I don't really feel like it's actually a lecture either. It's a spiritual speech is kind of what I'm putting it in the category of, and I feel like we can we can work with that. Sure. It's a lecture.
3: It's a sermon lecture.
1: Sermon lecture.
3: A uh, lecture. There we go. It's a
1: lecture. I messaged the David Livingston Institute directly. I said, do you have any sermons or speeches, anything we can use by him? This was one of three that remain, and this is one of the only copies you're going to find of it on the internet, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing it. The hearing the way God was working in his travels, the work they were doing to abolish slavery. Uh, one article described him. I think this is kind of a good description of who he was. Imagine Abraham Lincoln, Mother Teresa, and Neil Armstrong, and kind of roll them into one person. Um, but he was not always such a famous guy.
3: Yeah, David Livingston. I'm I'm excited for this one. Livingston is a guy that uh, I'm familiar with. I feel like most people that grew up in Sunday school have heard about Livingston. I feel like he is—he he's is a, a classic Sunday school uh, kind of missionary story that kids were taught growing up. Livingston was born in 1813 and when he turned 10, he was living in the United Kingdom in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. All right, so he's 10 years old, middle of the UK. The average lifespan of an industrial worker during this time in the UK is 22 years old. And Livingston starts working in a cotton mill as a 10-year-old. He lived nearby London in Scotland and would work there at the cotton mill all day and during the evening he would take night classes and evening classes. It was said that he would work a 14-hour shift at a cotton mill and then go to classes. You can imagine the effect this would have on not only the psyche of a, a person but the education of a person and just the childhood in general. You don't you have no childhood when Absolutely. this is your pre-teen years is working
1: 14-hour shifts. And
3: then trying to learn at
1: night. Yeah, and on top of that, he grew up as of one a kid out of seven to very poor parents. Uh, they lived in a one-room apartment. You know, we talk about sometimes on the show worst places to be. I think the Black Plague sure. is probably still the worst, but this is not close second. Not a time period I would want to live through. Again, you, your average lifespan is twenty-two, so you're, you know you start working at five, six, seven in the cotton mill and. You got about 15 good ones and then you're done. These may seem like humble beginnings in some ways. They're almost as humble as you can pretty much get, but in other ways you could almost see this as the perfect training ground for a future life overseas. Uh, In the 1830s, American and British churches made this big push to send medical missionaries to China. They realized there were just, I think at the time, 500, 600 million people in China that didn't know God, had no access to God. We had to get people over there. Uh, This is the same period that Hudson Taylor's parents, if you remember those episodes, they start praying that God would send them a child that they could send to China. And uh, they get that child. He's born in 1832. Well, at the same time, Livingston's alive. He feels this call. I want to go to China. I want to do it too. Uh, he took his wages after work and he would use what little meager amount of money he had to go to school to learn the skills he would need to be a missionary he would pay to learn Greek he would want to learn theology he would learn medical skills he does this I mean I want to say for about 4 or 5 years um, until 1838 when he gets to sign up with the London Missionary Society in 1839 the opium wars erupt in China and any chance of him going to China is pretty much over Uh, He met a famous South African missionary named Robert Moffat. He described a place where no missionaries had ever gone. It's with villages and sunsets. It's all this unexplored territory and all these people who need to hear about God. And, you know, Dr. David Livingston, he didn't hear this dangerous place filled with animals. He heard this exciting adventure where he could bring glory to God. And he was like, sign me up. I'm in. In
3: 1841, he arrived in the Kalahari Desert and Livingston was not successful for 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 a while he was there 10 years initially and during that time there was only one convert that he had to speak of and I kind of like that human aspect of Livingston you know I feel like a lot of missionaries can relate with having a passion and a burden for a place and a people and pouring your heart into it to see very little fruit But he loved the work and he continued with the work. He set up missionary stations. He taught. He ran a garden. After four years there, he would end up marrying Robert Moffat's daughter, Mary. An aspect of of Livingston that I didn't know before kind of doing research for this is that at at a time in his life, he kind of seemed like a jerk. (laughs) He was definitely unliked by a lot of people. He did not get along very well with other Westerners. His attitude was poor he liked to read books and to be alone and so when anyone kind of he didn't work well with other people at all he definitely kept to himself and ended up being kind of smug towards other missionaries that were trying to work alongside him he constantly got into fights with other missionaries and some of that maybe was justified on Livingston's side He, he would you know document yelling at other missionaries that were not treating the native people as well as he thought they deserved but at one point, another missionary, a white Afrikaners, would end up burning down his station and taking his animals because they were so tired of dealing with him and all of his complaints, like a little
1: rivalry where they just couldn't stand each other. And the London Missionary Society got a little tired of him during this time too because he just kept going on these explorers' missions. Uh, he had a dream of what he called, quote, God's highway, or this road that could connect all the inner parts of Africa together and that missionaries and everyone could use and it could really uh, help reconnect this continent in his mind of course the the, these adventures into africa did not always go well because this is after africa after all uh for example and just one of many issues he had uh, in 1844 he was trying to set up a mission station on one of his explorer journeys and he gets mauled by a lion um he lost his ability to really use his proper right arm for firing a gun after that and he he would be forever at a disadvantage for the next 30 something years traveling on a continent with wild animals he would only be able to shoot with his left hand which was as much weaker not you know good at aiming mean arm that put him in a severe uh handicap to that kind of continent Uh, but his adventuring also paid off he became the first european to find just all these different locations visit many of these tribes and even the first one to spot what he would name victoria falls in 1852 due to medical problems he helped his wife family and family kind of move back to scotland Um, but in 1853 he returned to africa determined with one of his main goals and missions was to end the slave trades that he saw This episode is brought to you by the Better Samaritan podcast with hosts Ken Annan and Jamie Aiden.
0: The whole idea is we're looking at how do we do good better? The Good Samaritan helped out along the road, but then in Dr. Martin Luther King's sermon, he talked about how we want to also figure out why did the person get beat up along the road? We want to make the whole road safer. So that's the, that's where we're coming from on this podcast. Far too often, we've seen Good Samaritans whose hearts were in the right place but because they weren't also
3: helping with their smarts, they actually ended up causing harm. So we really wanna bring both our our faith and look for biblical understanding, as well as what can research and science teach us to be able to help us do this work better. Most often, it's these small acts of kindness that make the biggest differences in the lives of our neighbors. And so on the podcast,
2: we explore those small ways to get involved, those tangible, practical, concrete
0: ways of what it means to love our neighbors.
2: You can find Better Samaritan anywhere you get podcasts.
3: The way he wanted to end the slave trade was to establish British colonies, to push out the Portuguese colonies. The Portuguese colonies sold Africans to Cuba and America, and especially to Brazil. He assumed that if he could get a British colony in there to route them, they could end the slave trade that way. And it's during this era that we see all these headlines emerge about Livingston's life. We see attacks from Europeans and others. We see attacks from animals. We see his hunting expeditions culminates into making Livingston kind of this larger than life, kind of kind of a celebrity in the newspapers. When he returned to England in 1857, everyone wanted to hear from him. Everyone wanted to to speak. And this speech that we're about to listen to was was from that trip back to England in 1857.
1: Yeah, and about this speech too. This this you know lecture, sermon style, spiritual certain thing he did. Um, it, the first day, you know, all the students' classes canceled. Everyone comes to hear. Day two, the one we're going to listen to uh, that I've titled In the Heart of Africa, he, I mean, it's more than just everyone at the university. The entire city shuts down to hear this lecture. The mayor's there. It's hard for him to finish sentences because people are cheering. They're just so excited to hear about everything going on and all the work that they had done and all the things they had accomplished after being one of the first Europeans to discover the interior of Africa, he then goes back to Africa a few more times. Now, sadly, in 1862, his wife, Mary, died of fever on a return trip to Africa Um, in 1864 he returned to England he really wanted to get the word out on slavery and what was happening in Africa and how people were being sold and it was a horrible mess Um, his accounts of the people there put stories to the slave trade and it it put a it showed it from a perspective they hadn't really heard of really got it out into the limelight Um, in 1866 he goes back to Africa. He's determined to find the source of the Nile. Where does the Nile start? And at one point, this low moment on this journey is probably the saddest thing. I mean, I think you could probably go through maybe the exception of you know losing your wife or a loved one. But he's in this village, and I don't know what happens. It's not described very well, but the Arabic slave traders, the people taking people from Africa and selling them to the Middle East, they get in a in and in a, something goes wrong with them in this village and he ends up seeing hundreds of people just killed on the spot and it's just this moment that he describes this, it just challenged him, hurt him, um, wrote that back, told people about it in England and it just angered them and it got them you know fired up this needs to stop this is a terrible thing that's happening that's you know we're letting happen in Africa. Uh, in 1871, people had not heard from Livingston for a while. Uh, they assumed he had died a uh, journalist said I'm determined to find out I'm gonna go into the heart of Africa I'm gonna figure out where this guy is and he he um he gets there and there's kind of this cutesy the- theatrical moment but uh, he finds him in this village and he walks up to him and he goes dr. Livingston I presume and he wrote that into his papers that headline went insane around the world I mean this is you know that's the clickbait of a title if you've ever seen one right and so it was this big theatrical thing, but people just loved it. They loved this guy's story, and they loved the they loved the whole action adventure element. You know, the Indiana Jones beforehand, but a real guy. Um, he becomes this legend as he tells these stories of what he's been. I mean, finding him alive when everyone thought he kind of died. Um, he does eventually die in 1873 of dysentery at the age of 60 in what is modern day Zambia.
3: At the point that we listen to his speech here the point we're joining in he's relaying the stories of God's work some of the things that he saw were good and some were not so good but you can see his heart for the people of Africa and his desire to see more missionaries sent to those parts where the gospel had never been
2: Turning to the map of South Africa, I want to draw your attention to three imaginary zones in the southern part, all different in population and climate. You will see that this part of Africa forms a kind of cone. This cone can be divided into three longitudinal bands or zones. The eastern band makes up what is generally known as Muslim land, which has been rather a difficult nut to crack for the English nation. However, the Muslim war has at length ended, both parties finding themselves exhausted from fighting. We had to pay two million pounds of money and lost a great many valuable lives as well. That part of the country is mountainous and well-watered. The central zone, or Swana country, is comparatively dry and seldom visited by rain. And its inhabitants, the Swana, are not nearly so warlike as others. Passing towards the west, we come to a level plain called the Kalahari Desert, not consisting of barren sands like the generally received notions of deserts, but covered with grass, bushes, and trees. It contains a population called the Bakalahari. I lived 16 years on the borders of the Kalahari Desert. Having gone to the country in 1841, I was naturally anxious to ascertain the effect the teaching of the missionaries had produced. I must own that I was disappointed in what I saw, having formed rather high expectations. I forwarded the result of my inquiries to the London Missionary Society, who sent me out, and after a little time, went to the country past that, where I found people in much worse condition than the previous ones. And when I compared those I had just come amongst with the people with whom I had recently lived, the benefit of the missionary teaching then appeared great indeed, when rescued from the degradation and superstitions of heathenism, one shows improvement in a massive degree. We should compare new converts to those who are still surrounded with all their old associations of heathenism, much like the churches first planted by the apostles, then with ourselves. We have enjoyed the immeasurable blessings of the gospel for so long, and are so essentially different from those ways which governed the converts of the first Christian age. So our missionaries must labor hard and see lots of backsliding among their new converts. If these later soldiers of the cross have to mourn over the inconsistencies of their converts, it must be remembered that such was also the case with the apostles, as their writings prove toward their early converts, especially those of St. Paul, the great apostle of the Gentiles. I consider that the young missionary should devote himself as much as possible to his own field of duty and not interfere with any other man's labor, but go to the real lost, those who may not have ever heard Christ's name or received his gospel. Through the instrumentality of Mr. Moffat, the Sawana have the Bible in their own language. To show the value put on the sacred volume, in the first editions there were two sorts. One was rather cheaper than the other and the binding less costly. The people purchased the cheap edition Thinking the binding was stronger, but when they found it was not so, they soon bought all the more costly Bibles with zeal. Mr. Moffat's labors for the first ten years of his ministry did not show any apparent success, and a large body of the tribe left the district in which he preached. And they went a hundred miles away in order to get out of the reach of his preaching, thinking to live in their own way without any stings of conscience. But in the latter respect, they were mistaken. For the seed of the gospel had taken root in their hearts, and they were obliged to send to the missionaries for assistance, and their chiefs used to go back and forth for teaching. There was a constant relay going to the missionaries and coming back to teach those whom they left at home. When first visited by the missionary, 100 were considered proper subjects for baptism, and the church there now has numbers upwards of 300 in just that one village. Many native missionary stations are dispersed around. It is an indisputable fact that when a man feels the value of the gospel himself, in his own heart, he is anxious to impart its blessings to others. Travelling still in the south, I determined to visit a tribe called the Lequins, resolving to go to the country beyond Kuruman. And when I commenced preaching the gospel to them, I seemed as one who came with a lie or with some political object in view. So they received me with suspicion, saying, It is too good to be true, adding, This man has some other design, which we will soon see. For they thought it strange that a man should leave his own tribe to preach to others. This caution was rather a good trait in their character, for it prevented them making sudden professions that turned into little real faith. Their chief is a remarkable man. He resolved at once to learn to read, and on the very first day of my visit acquired the entire alphabet. One day he said to me, after I had been preaching to the tribe, "'Do you imagine you will get these people to believe by just talking to them? "'I can do nothing without beating them. "'If you want them to believe, I and my underchiefs "'will get out our whips of rhinoceros' hide, "'and soon make them all believe.' That was before he understood the gospel. He soon afterward began to feel its influence, but as he expressed it himself, could not disentangle himself from his country's custom of having more wives than one. This was a source of constant conflict to him. Feeling the gospel at heart, he talked no longer of beating his people, but suggested frequent prayer meetings. Accordingly, when he consulted me on the subject pressing so much on his mind, and especially about baptism, for which he applied for about two years after he professed Christianity, I simply asked him if he thought he was doing right. What did he think he should do? I never preached against polygamy, but left the matter to take its course. Sechele was his name, and he went away and sent home four of his wives, giving each a new dress and saying publicly he had no fault to find with them, that the sole reason for parting with them was conviction in the truth of the gospel. Therefore the separation was a relief to his mind, and I was saved from much anxiety on this matter. These women and their friends became the determined enemies both of myself and Sashele. Now in Africa, if a chief is fond of hunting, dancing, or drinking, His people are ready to follow in the same pursuits. But with Christianity, this was not the case. Sechele was both astonished and disappointed at finding the people stayed away from his meetings. And his underchiefs opposed both him and me. I and my cause were now unpopular. Unfortunately, at this time, there was a four-year drought, and the people believed implicitly that their chief had the power of making rain, and since none had come for so long a time, they suspected me of having thrown a charm over him that would not allow him to make the rain. He was the rainmaker of the tribe, and this fact was easily connected with my instruments and movements. If Sasheli was the accredited rainmaker of the tribe, I was now the self-appointed necromancer, and he had become my unconscious victim. Many of these people waited on me, begging me to allow them some rain, really thinking that I was purposely preventing the rain from descending. One old man used to come to me and say, The corn is yellow for lack of rain. The cattle lack grass. The children require milk. The people lack water. So just let our chief make the rain come, and then he may sing and pray as long as he likes. Looking at my rough circumstances, this drought was terrible. I watched the clouds as anxiously as they did, and many a cloudy morning, promising refreshing showers, turned into a cloudless day as parching as ever. They declared that the people would starve or all leave the district, and I should have no one to preach to. It was quite heartbreaking to hear them, seeing them in their distress, and especially with them still in their lost state. I endeavored to persuade them that no mortal could control the rain, and their argument was, we know very well that God makes the rain, and we pray to him by means of medicines. You use medicines to give to a sick man, and sometimes he dies, but you don't give up your medicine, just because one man dies, and when anyone is cured by it, you take the credit. So the only thing we can do is to offer our medicines, which by continued application may be successful. The only way to eradicate such thoughts from the minds of these people is to give them the gospel. They entertained a horror of Christianity because they imagined that everyone who becomes a Christian does not want rain, and they regarded me as the leader of the anti-rain faction. Those who became converted cannot be regarded as hypocrites, for hypocrites do not generally take the cause that ensures an empty stomach. I had no doubt the gospel was entering into their hearts, for when I had been passing their houses, I had frequently heard them engaged in prayer in a loud tone of voice. It is considered very disgraceful for men to cry in Africa. A stoical indifference to all sorrow or suffering is their cultural practice. Yet I watched stern men in public assemblies crying out like the jailer at Philippi and weeping in the most pitiful manner about the concerns of their souls. I doubt not, though I may not live to see it, that God will bring my ministry in that region to a good result. The difficult situation of Chief Shishele, as I said before, was with regard to his five wives. The father of this man, the former chief, had been murdered, and four of the powerful men of the tribe had assisted in restoring the son, the chieftainship of the tribe. To show his gratitude for this service, he had married a daughter of each of his benefactors. Now he could not very well put them away without appearing ungrateful. I found great difficulty in this matter. The wives were my best students, and I wished to save them as well as the chief. In consequence of being sent away, these women and their friends became bitter enemies of Christianity. Furthermore, the cultural practice was to form an alliance with great men. When being introduced, he is sure to tell you that he is the remote cousin, relation, or descendant of some noted man. Or some friend or hanger-on will tell you for him. Such alliances, too, have a political importance for the chief himself, since they attach powerful men to his interests and service. So here my difficulties were increased by these facts. But the most difficult opponents I had to contend against were the Dutch. The most disaffected are those who have fled from English law. They have set up a republic in order to carry out what they call the proper treatment of the blacks, which is making them render compulsory, unpaid labor in return for what they call protection. These tender-hearted Christians have introduced a new species of slavery. The Sawanas will not sell their people, so the Boers seize children for domestic slaves. The reason why they do this is a shrewd one. There can be no fugitive slave law in Africa. Here, if a slave runs away, it is not very likely that he will be recovered. So if a child is taken away, and he does not know his tribe, and he forgets his mother tongue and possibly even his parents, so he has less desire to run away. On the occasion that the Dutch attacked Seychelles, they carried away 200 children, with the motives and for the purposes stated. In truth, the Boers are backward slave hunters. Two hundred years ago, a number of Dutch and French people, the descendants of pious families, fled from the persecutions in Holland and France and settled at and around the Cape. But their descendants fled from the British Dominion in Cape Colony on account of the emancipation by the government of their slaves. They said they did not like a government that made no difference between a black man and a white one. They therefore made raids and slavery expeditions and established themselves where they could pursue their slave-holding tendencies with impunity. No fugitive slave law being in operation, hundreds of Africans fled from the Boers to Seychelles, and the Dutch consequently desired to get rid of that particular chief. They attacked them while I was staying among them, and they had frequent battles with the people, killing many of them in these unequal conflicts. As an illustration as to how far exaggeration can be carried, on one occasion I lent the chief a cooking pot, which the Boers afterwards claimed I gave them a cannon, and five guns turn into 500 when they tell their stories. The Dutch call themselves Christians, but they call the Africans black property or creatures, saying that God has given them the heathen for an inheritance. This accursed system has made them fraudulent and mean-spirited. English missionaries, traders, and travelers are their abomination. They fear that they will enlighten the Africans, and especially fear that we will give them firearms. They went to the English authorities to inform them that I was protecting the Suwana with a cannon and that even some Boers were killed with guns. The reputation of this cannon kept the Boers away for seven years, but when their independence was declared by the colonial government, they again made war upon the Sawana people. And having mounted horses and possessing guns, they had the advantage, but it so happened that the Sawana killed some of the Boers in one battle, and the Boers gave me all the credit for it asserting as a reason, these people knew nothing of shooting till this Englishman came among them, and he has taught them. The Boers, however, ultimately were victorious and carried off 200 children of the Sawanna into slavery while killing 60 adults. Shishelae, knowing that such a proceeding was contrary to their engagements and all law, set off to go to the Queen of England to tell her of their conduct. I met him on his way to the Cape, and decided to persuade him from going any further. On explaining the difficulties of the trip, and attempting to dissuade him from the attempt, he put the pointed question to me. Will the queen not listen to me, supposing I should reach her? I replied, I believe she would listen, but the difficulty is to get to her. He had many conversations with me on the subject, but he was determined in his course and proceeded to Cape Town. Now it so happened that the governor of Cape Colony had just sent home a wonderful account of the peace and happiness that would prevail under his plan. Had he taken any notice of Shishele, it would have been a virtual confession that he had been lying. Because of this, the chief and I met with little encouragement from him. He had an interview with the governor, to whom he delivered a letter from me, offering to point out the whole of the children, but it was all to no purpose. It is convenient sometimes for governors to be deaf and shrug their shoulders, and to put political expediency before individual rights. He advised Shisheli to go on, and subscribed 113 pounds for him. That did not go far, and soon he found himself at length a thousand miles from home, and as poor as when he started. Instead of feeling angry at the failure of his mission, he began to preach to the natives around him, and many anti-slavery tribes joined forces with him. Now he has many more people than he had before and finds it hard work to be both priest and king. He opened a prayer meeting and became his own missionary among his people. He built himself a house and a school and was the means of converting his wife. The people clustered around him, and there is every reason to believe that he is a sincere Christian. What we greatly need is more missionaries to sow the seed of spiritual truth. The fields are ready for the harvest. Glorious is the prospect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all the ends of the earth. Laborers are wanted in the heathen vineyard of the Lord, as the missionary has only put in the thin end of the wedge towards the advancement of the kingdom of heaven in those dark places of the earth, which are still full of habitations of cruelty. Africa especially. Where are the mission stations of North or South Central Africa? Yet there are any number of tribes left in those regions. As an encouragement to those who think of being missionaries, I need not say more to you than to call to remembrance those reformers who founded our colleges here. The missionaries' work is one of the most honorable a man can desire. Think of those reformers. Who would not like to be one of them? The missionaries now are in their position. Those who now go forth as missionaries and attempt to advance the knowledge of Christ and His gospel are just like the Reformers were, bringing the name of Christ to new places. Like the morning star before the dawn, they entered into the thick darkness and began the glorious work of making known the promises of Christ. And for this posterity, will bless their name. Indeed, to be a missionary is a great privilege and honor. The work is so great and glorious that it has this promise of him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It encourages both itself and its promoters. Finding that I could not successfully carry on the work of a missionary among the Sawana, I thought of the idea of becoming a traveler the question came across my mind, where will you go? To the north or to the south? I resolved to go to the north, to attempt to open the country to the coast. Having gotten into the country beyond the Kalahari Desert, bounded to the south by Lake Nagami, I came into quite a different country. Here there are a great many rivers which flow from the sides into the center. And at certain periods of the year, watermelons are found in abundance. Upon the fluid of which oxen and men have survived for days. This would help eliminate the need to carry water. Animals are also plentiful, although they took care to keep out of bowshot. I found that with my gun I could kill as many as were wanted. In my journey beyond the desert, I met with many antelopes of a kind previously unknown to naturalists, along with elephants, buffaloes, zebras, and the like. The chief of the central basin I have described is named Sekilatu. I proposed to teach him to read, but he said he was afraid it would change his heart and make him content with only one wife like Cichelle. I told him if he were content with one, what would it matter? But he said, no, no, I always want to have five. I intend to keep them. Seeing I was anxious that he should learn to read, he subjected his father-in-law to learn first, as some men like to see the effect of medicines on other people before they take it themselves. And finding that it did him no harm, Sakilatu was taught long enough to gain the ability to read. I entered the central basin in order to find a path to the sea. I might have gone west from Lignati, but the country in that direction was infested with an insect called Setsi whose bite is fatal to most tame animals. To escape the insect plague, I resolved to go northwards and westwards to Luanda, the capital of Angola, a large city containing 12,000 inhabitants, with a cathedral and a Jesuit college. Having reached the west coast, I found I had not accomplished my object of finding the path to the sea, the way being beset with difficulties and almost impassable. In fact, the only path was by oxback and dense forests had to be passed through by tortuous roads. I decided, therefore, to go back and see if the Zambezi might know a good pathway to the eastern coast. The people of the interior are excited to start negotiations with Europeans. Having been raised in times of war, they ask, When will you bring us sleep? We just want sleep. What they mean is peace. One reason I was so well received in the country was because it had gotten around that I had come for that purpose. One report told to the Portuguese governor at Tete was that the Son of God was coming with the moon under his arm, alluding to me and my mapping gear. Several chiefs and leaders from towns and villages in the interior waiting on me asked for sleep. It was also the topic of the songs and talk of the women. All this evidence proves a certain preparedness for receiving the gospel, and it is for Christian England to answer the inquiry with the pure gospel of the Prince of Peace. Already, Providence is clearing the way for that gospel. You see, the hand of God has been at work in a striking way. When I first went to that country, I found Providence paving the way before me. A chieftain had invaded the central basin before I went there. He had conquered the country discovered Lake Nagami and gave them the language of the Sawana, into which Mr. Moffat had translated the scriptures. It had become one of the main languages in the district. The tribes in this region used to cut off the heads of strangers and stick them on poles, but the chief who conquered them had made the country safe. Otherwise my cranium might have adorned one of their villages." I am convinced that the Portuguese have never gone into this district because their maps give a different course to arrive at Zambezi, and I give further evidence for that opinion from the quantity of ivory tusks I saw adorning the graves of chieftains, and put to other uses, thereby proving that there was no market for them. Another reason is that they sent people all the way to Mozambique for lime, when there were large marble quarries within a much shorter distance in the interior. So I believe that I am the first European who has entered that region. But now they have the Bible in their own language. It is the fashionable language, and the missionary has no difficulty in communicating with them. We see here that the hand of providence has been at work. When I was at Luanda, I was laid up with the fevers of the country, and being very weak, Captain Beddingfield, with whom I was a good friend, passionately persuaded me to go home. He even offered free passage. However, I had brought with me twenty-seven men looking for this path and had no desire to leave them. So committing certain papers and maps to the care of that officer, I bade him farewell. Soon afterward I received intelligence that the ship had gone down off Madeira, and my papers with it. Several lives were lost, but my friend was saved. Had I gone with the ship, I should have likely drowned. And had I, on the other hand, first traveled eastward, I should have gone in the midst of the skirmishes that were then going on between the Portuguese and the Muslims, and might have been cut down among them. Even when I traveled in that direction, a little ways I was sometimes in danger. But when I said I was an Englishman, I was allowed to pass. I was told that if I went to the east, the people who were for the support of the Portuguese government might kill me. I said that I loved Africans as much as any European man. I often found that I rose in the estimation of the people among whom I passed, when it was told I was an Englishman, one from that country which is engaged in putting an end to slavery. They called me the right sort of European. My object in laboring, as I have in Africa, is to open up the country to commerce and Christianity. This is my objective in returning there. I contend that we should not be ashamed of our religion, and had we not kept our faith so much out of sight in India, we should not be now in such dire straits in that country. Let us appear just as we are. For my own part, I intend to go out as a missionary, and hope boldly, but with civility, to state the truth of Christianity and my belief that those who do not possess it are in error. My objective in Africa is not only the elevation of man, but that the country might be so opened that man might see the need of his sole salvation. I propose in my next expedition to visit the Zambezi and to appease the different chiefs along its banks and attempt to introduce them to cultivate cotton and to abolish the slave trade. Already they trade in ivory and gold dust and are anxious to extend their commercial operations. There is a probability of their interests being linked with ours, and thus the elevation of Africa would be the result. I believe England is alive to her duty of Christianizing the heathen. We cannot all go out as missionaries, it is true, but we may all do something towards providing a substitute. Moreover... We all may especially do that work which every missionary highly prizes. Commend the work in their prayers. I hope that those whom I now address will both pray for and help those who are their substitutes.
1: one thing that stood out to me was his life does not sound easy shipwrecks sickness constant attacks from everything under the Sun the elements animals other people he had gone through all that and yet he just has this heart for this people and he just continues to put himself in danger and go back and he doesn't care about his personal comfort he's just interested in exploring the world God has created and um, putting new places on the map for others to be aware of and and telling people about God he lived a life that in a lot of ways doesn't really sound like a missionary's story, but God used them and used his legacy to inspire and encourage just so many different people. And he really helped put the, the, the heart and souls of the people of Africa into the minds of others and made them realize like there's a whole bunch of people that need to hear the gospel. <laughs>
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Claussen. Jonathan Claussen started with Clear Channel Radio in the 90s, and he has worked in audio and marketing for 20 years. His credits include stints in EA Tiburon, Christianity, Today, Christ in Pop Culture, and Freelance as voice talent for audiobooks, podcasts, and production services.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts. This is an exciting episode to us. This is, again, one where we reached out and grabbed something that truly hasn't been seen in years and years, and we're able to bring it out and out to the public and let people hear it again. Uh, We could not do this without your help and your support. If you are a Patreon supporter, thank you so much for doing that. We owe you a lot. And you guys have really helped us just make this show better and better. If you are not a Patreon supporter, we encourage you to consider jumping in there and helping us out. For a few dollars a month, you can get access to a whole bunch of different features. Joel, what are some of those features? Yeah, uh,
3: an ad-free feed, which is a big deal to me. Some people don't care. I like an ad-free feed. Uh, You also get a signed bookmark by Troy and I, a Revive Thoughts bookmark. It comes in the mail. Add free feed. Signed, bookmark. Uh, so we, Troy and I, usually once a month, we'll record what we call Behind the Mic, which is just kind of a fun show where we can interact with Patreons and kind of just show a little bit of behind the scenes as far as what goes into making this show. That's all on the Patreon feed as well. As as well as we, we work on some history deep dive episodes where we can spend more time on a specific historical topic
1: so if you have listened to the salem witch trials preview you can hear the rest of that episode if you become a patreon member so thank you so much for that and most importantly honestly for us the big deal is that you help us make this show better if it weren't for you guys we would not be able to continue doing this so we're really appreciative of all the help you guys are giving us thank you so much for listening to this episode of revive thoughts this is troy and joel this is revive
2: thoughts
0: the Better Samaritan podcast, where we're learning how to love our neighbors well in a world filled with injustice and pain. Join me, Kent Annan, and Jamie Aiton, my co-host and colleague at the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, as we interview experts with insight on learning to do good better.